Okay, now in a couple of weekends time, uh, on the 19th of May, there's going to be a royal wedding. Prince Harry is marrying Meghan Markle. Now the reason I know it's the 19th is not that I'm obsessed with them as a couple, it's because it's FA Cup final day, so I was like, it was an easy one for me to remember. So uh, it's going to be, uh, of course, very happy for them as a couple that they're going to be getting married, but for Steph and myself, we're feeling slightly inconvenienced by the whole thing. Our lives have been severely disrupted because one of our favourite TV programmes is Suits. Meghan Markle is one of the main, main actors in Suits, and because she's getting married to Prince Harry, she can no longer be in Suits. So for us, I thought that was common news, I'm very sorry, you should have chucked out a spoiler alert there. We can pray for you. So. As she's looking, as Meghan Markle's looking to become part of this new family, she's going to be, she's going to be part of a new family, she's going to have a new identity, she's going to have a new title, there's going to be new opportunities, expectations, responsibilities that are going to be placed on her. But for her, it also means that she's going to have to lay down some of the things that are incompatible with her new life. There are certain aspects of her life that just won't fit with the role that she's going to have and, and with her new identity as part of the royal family. And it could be actually some of the things that she's having to lay to one side potentially have been key parts of her identity up until this point. This is what people know her for. This is what she does. And so for her, I can't speak on her behalf. I don't know her. Um, but there would have been cost involved for her in that decision. When that proposal came, there would have been that, that decision. Actually, what's it going to cost for me? The reason I'm saying this is because the gospel message, the message, the good news of Jesus is that through Jesus we can be brought into God's family. We're given a new identity. Our old life has gone, we've been given a new life. But that also means that it brings with it new ways of living, new priorities, new opportunities, new expectations and often probably for all of us, means that we need to lay aside or at least overhaul areas of our life that are incompatible with the new life that we've been given. It's a process that we go through. Being a follower of Jesus involves more than just changing a few parts, maybe a few features of our lifestyle. It requires a complete reordering of every part of our being, every part of our existence, every area of our lives in willing, loving service to Jesus. So when we're brought into God's family, when we're given this new identity, actually there's this reordering of our lives in line with the way that God would have us live. There's a cost involved. It's disruptive. And this is Paul's message to the church in Thessalonica. We're looking at this today as we continue to journey together through 1 Thessalonians. If you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're into chapter 4. Uh, we'll come up on the screens. Um, but I don't know, for me I find it quite helpful if I've actually got my Bible, I find it helpful to, to read from there. Uh, so just as you're finding your way there, just a recap really of the series so far, a bit of the background of the letter. So this is a, a fledgling church, it's a new church. Okay, so Paul and Silas, they've gone into the city of Thessalonica, they've preached the gospel, many, many people have responded to the extent that they've now gathered, in, gathered uh, a number together and they've got this church. So it's a number of the Jewish believers that were in the city, but a number of the Greek citizens as well. But then Paul and Silas have been forced to leave the city 
uh, it seems like much quicker than they would have liked to. Normally, the way that they would work is that they would go into a city, preach the gospel, spend some time teaching and training the new converts there, building and establishing the church. But they didn't have a chance for that. In Thessalonica, they were forced out. And then, so they've left the city uh, uh, sooner than they would have liked to. Later on, they send their friend Timothy to see how the church is getting on, to be able to send a report back. And this is what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And really, Paul's starting point is this, is that for the church, they now have a new identity. They're the church of the Thessalonians, um, and they are rooted and established in God. That's where their identity is. And he goes on to encourage them. He says, do you know what? You guys are doing so, so well. I can see you're excelling in faith and love and hope. I can see that the message you've received from us is changing the way that you're living. We can see that actually your new identity is working its way out in the way that you live. Not only that, they're also proving to be examples to brothers and sisters in the communities and in the villages and towns and cities around them. They're getting a bit of a reputation and boy, is it a good reputation that they are getting. And so we've seen this and we've explored a lot more of that over the past few weeks. But this morning, our title for today is Living It Out. You see, for the Thessalonians, having received the gospel, their lives have been radically changed. Their identity has been rooted in God. And as Paul's letter continues, what we'll see today is he's instructing those new believers on the practical outworking of their faith. Okay, so their identity has changed. They've got their faith in God, but there's a practical outworking of that faith. It should affect the way that they live. Their lives should look very different to the way that they looked before. And really what Paul is saying is, or asking the question, what does the Christian faith look like in the everyday? Okay, so we're thinking about living it out. So we're going to start from the start, from the beginning of um, chapter 4. We're going to read through 12 verses. So Paul writes, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Let me talk about another member of the royal family. But we're going to go back to December of 1936. And in December of 1936, Edward VIII, who was king at the time, he abdicated the throne. He stepped down from the position of being... King, And the reason why is because he had fallen in love with Wallace Simpson. She was a divorced American socialite. And this was at a time 
where the royal family, members of the royal family, were not allowed to marry divorcees. He had a decision to make. He decided that the cost to remain as king was too great, too great a cost for him to pay. And so he stepped down from the throne. Uh, his brother came through, became king. But for Edward, he had that decision to make. What was the cost involved for me to stay as king? In Mark 10, we read of uh, a conversation that Jesus has with a guy who's very wealthy, a rich man, and he comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to have eternal life? And they kind of have a bit of back and forth conversation and Jesus says that he looks at the man and he loves him and knowing what was in the guy's heart, knowing what was most important to him, he says, you need to go and sell everything that you have and you need to go and give it, give it away. Go give it to the people that need it. And we're told that the man walks away. Uh, he walks away sad. He could not receive the message that Jesus was giving him because he counted the cost and for him the cost to follow Jesus was greater than he was willing to pay. See, there is a cost involved in following Jesus. There's a cost involved in the initial response that we make because we know actually in, in terms of what it means to follow Jesus means that a lot of the thing, or the lives that we've lived before are going to have to be overhauled in line with the way that Jesus would have us live. And we need to decide, is that a price we're willing to pay or not? But it's also an ongoing cost involved in following Jesus. I don't know if this is your experience. It probably, it probably is. Is that there's an ongoing cost in following him. As we reorder our lives and as we walk out our faith day by day. Particularly in areas that have played a huge part in our lives before. And possibly even in areas of our lives where our identity has been rooted. They're the areas of our lives where we, we felt like this is who we were. This is how people would know who we were. But as I was preparing for this morning, the thing that came to mind is this. Is that when we think about the life that we have when we follow Jesus, it's not about what you've lost. It's about what you've gained. Paul, who wrote this letter that we're working through this series, he also wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. And in Philippians 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said, whatever was in my life before, all of those things that I've had to lay to one side, all of those things that people would have known me for, where my identity was, to me, those things, I count them as loss compared to knowing Jesus. For him, knowing Jesus was everything. John Stott, in his commentary on, in, on this letter, he says that Christian morality is not primarily rules and regulations, but relationship. So helpful. Because there would be many within the church, and I think it would perhaps, this is just my opinion on it, be thinking that for many people outside the church looking in would see that the Christian faith and the Christian walk is one of rules and regulations. But it's not rules and regulations, it's about relationship. This is what Paul understood when he says actually to know Christ surpasses anything and everything that's come before. 
And this shines through in what Paul writes in these 12 verses here. We've kind of got two threads that run alongside each other. We've got a love for God and we've got a love for neighbour. It's about relationships. And that should, or, or, or that would remind us of what Jesus said when he was asked what the greatest commandment was. What's the best, the best way that we can live our lives? He said, actually, the best thing you can do is to love God with everything you have. The second best thing you can do is, like the first, is to love your neighbour as you love yourself. And we see these two threads running through what Paul is writing. So we're looking at it this morning. A love for God and a love for your neighbour. And Paul's starting point is this. At the start of chapter 4, this is what he says to to this church, and for us as well as believers, this is what it means. This is how your life should look, sorry, now as followers of Jesus. He says, walk in ways that are pleasing to God. That's how your life should look. You're to walk in ways that are pleasing to God. Some translations would say live, uh, instead of saying walk, would have the word live. So live in ways that would be pleasing to God. But actually, I think the word walk is very, very helpful. Because it puts a really helpful picture in our minds, actually, of what the Christian life is about. There's purpose. There's progress. Oftentimes, it's not about, it's not about rushing to, to, to see something through or to completion. Actually, it's about steady progress in the day-to-day life. But there is a purpose to it. It's directional. I wouldn't say to my wife, I'm going out for a walk and just stand out on the doorstep and walk on the spot. There'd be a purpose and a direction to what I'm doing. And likewise, the life of a follower of Jesus has purpose. It has direction. We're walking towards something. And so we're to walk it out day by day in ways that are pleasing to God. In John 8, 29, Jesus says how he always does the things that are pleasing to his Father. That's how Jesus lived his life. What's pleasing to my Father? That's the way that I'm going to live. And this is to be the goal of Jesus' disciples as well. That's the way that Jesus lived. If that was Jesus' motivation, if that was Jesus' desire and Jesus' heart, then that should be what drives us and what should be our goal as well as his disciples. I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. Now here is where the relational aspect comes in. When we think, actually, how do we know how to please God? I'm standing up here, I'm saying to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, walk in ways that are pleasing to God. The question that's going through your mind should be, how do we know what is pleasing to God? The answer is this, it's by walking daily with him. It's not just knowing about him, but actually knowing him. Cultivating relationship with him, walking daily with him, speaking to him, allowing him to speak to us. And as we get into this this way of living, as we walk daily with him, more and more in situations we face and circumstances that we're in, when things crop up and we're thinking, what's the best thing to do here? As we walk with God day by day, we'll find more and more, the question that comes to mind is, would it please God? Will what I do please God? And this is something that the Thessalonians were doing. They were doing it well. We've seen that already in the run-up to this chapter. And we see this because Paul urges them. He says, you're doing it well, but he says, I want you to do it more and more. Keep growing in it. You've not reached the limit. In fact, there is no limit. 
Because walking daily in ways that please God is something that we grow into. We never reach a point of completion. We never get to a point, this might disappoint many of you here, I'm sorry, you will never get to a point when I say, you are now the finished article as a Christian. Actually, when we stand before Jesus face to face, yes. But in this life, it's an ongoing process. The thing about rules and regulations is that rules and regulations, they set an acceptable standard to achieve or to attain. But there's a ceiling, they only go so far. But relationships aren't like that, they grow and deepen. What do you think about relationships that you have? They don't come to a point where you've reached a certain level in relationship with that person and go, that's as far as we're gonna go. I definitely would not turn around to my wife and say that. But I actually know, because that's not what relationships are about. You don't reach a certain point when you've reached the end of getting to know that person. It's ongoing. And actually, using my, my, my relationship with Steph, actually, the more I get to know her, the more I learn about her, the more I know the things that are pleasing to her, the more I know the best ways to love her and to support her and to serve her. It never gets to a point where I think, I know everything now. I'm in danger if I think I know everything now, because actually, I'm learning more and more. And yeah, that's true for me in one of my relationships, but that's true for all of us in all of the relationships that we have. We grow in our knowledge, not just in our knowledge of people, but in, in being with people, we know what it is to, to please them. We know what makes them tick. We know what, uh, the ways in which to serve them and to love them and to care for them best. And Paul said, actually, this is true of God. We're to grow in walking in ways that are pleasing to God. Have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? Paul tells us. He says this. He says to all believers, God's will for your life is your sanctification. That is, that we live holy lives. You see, through the gospel, we've been declared holy. Okay, so our position has changed. Our identity has changed. There's a declaration over us that when we respond to the gospel, we've been declared holy, but we're also sanctified through the same gospel, meaning that we are made holy through our daily lives. So we've been declared holy. That's our position before God. He looks at us. He says, you are holy, but there's an ongoing process of being made holy through our daily lives. I think a helpful way of looking at it is this, is it's a process of becoming increasingly like Jesus. Becoming like Jesus, being made holy in all areas of life, and sometimes it involves cutting off or laying aside certain things we've been involved in. Yet it can often mean reclaiming certain areas of life that have been distorted or fractured by sin. Now, I've just signed up uh, to an online course for British Sign Language Levels 1 and 2. We have a number of people uh, in church who I know have, have done courses and, and classes on sign language. I'm not doing it just so I can have secret conversations, although that will be a real benefit of it. Uh, potentially, you might get to a point, I wonder if I'll get to a point where I could sign my own sermons. Um, I won't do it for the first levels, otherwise I'll just find I'm talking about a lot of food and animals and stuff, just because they're the only words that I know. But with this course, I'm going to have to start at the very beginning. Okay, levels one and two, that's the limit of where I'm going to go to begin with. There would be much that is way beyond me if I were to go straight in on the advanced level. There's no way that I should be doing that. I need to start back at, right at the beginner level. We cannot be allowed to think that the call for holiness is for advanced Christians. <coughs> Remember, 
Paul is writing to a very new church full of very new believers. In many ways, there is nothing advanced about this church at all. They've received the message that Paul and Silas have given them and they're living it out as best they can. From the moment of starting to follow Jesus, you have been saved into God's family and you have been saved to live a holy life from day one. And then Paul goes on. So he's kind of established this call. You're to to walk uh, in ways that are pleasing to God. You've got this process of sanctification where you're becoming more and more like Jesus. And then he addresses three areas in particular. He talks about sex, relationships, and work. My original plan was that I was going to cover all three of those things this morning. As I was doing my preparation, I realized that's not going to happen. And if I tried to do it, it would just would be too vague and not really being able to, to get into anything properly. So I've kind of changed. I told Mike this morning about five minutes before the meeting, I was like, the preaching series has changed. We're going to have to do a bit of a, a knock-on over the weeks to come. Um, because So actually, we're going to come back next week to think about relationships and work. And today, we're going to focus on what Paul talks about sex. Now, as an elder in the church where your parents are members of the same church, it's always an interesting one where you're standing teaching your parents about what the Bible says about sex. And I've just realised my in-laws are in the church as well. So it's a very, uh, very, I'm going to say it's a privileged position. So, uh, um, so in a way, I'm giving my parents the talk today. So, um, I've completely lost my train of thought now. Where was I? Okay. So Paul, he was writing into a Greek culture that was very much at odds with the teaching of Jesus in terms of its attitude towards sex and sexual intimacy. Promiscuity, fornication, adultery, it was part of normal life in the culture that Paul was writing into and in particular into the cultures that, that Jesus' teaching was going into. Even to the point where it featured in some of the religious worship, many of the religions at the time had this, this kind of element of, of um, sex involved in it. So I want us to think, that, or to, to just bear in mind, that this sort of attitude would have been prevalent in Thessalonica. It would have been the, the general way of thinking through much of the population. And also, if we are understanding that many of the new believers were, were Greek believers coming out of a Greek context, then surely for many of those, the attitudes that were prevalent around in terms of the attitude towards sex and sexual intimacy, they would have been, that would be the background that they were coming out of, okay? So they would have been, been living in a way where they were told, this is acceptable, this is acceptable, this is not, or, or whatever it may be. So when Paul is writing, understand that many of the Greek believers would have had or would have come uh, would have had this attitude or would have come out of this sort of uh, uh, attitude before they'd responded to the gospel. So Paul is saying, actually, we just need to get our, our eyes and our, and our way of thinking aligned with what Jesus would teach and what the Bible would say about the way uh, you're to, to live uh, and uh, through all areas of life. But he's saying, actually, we need to talk about the way that we think about sex and our attitudes towards sex. So that was the culture when Paul was writing. So we might be thinking, actually, for us here today, in Faversham, actually, we need to think about what is our culture like? Because is what Paul writing to this church, is it applicable to us today? I need to be careful, because when we're talking about what the culture might say about sex, 
we're going to be painting with fairly broad brush strokes here. That's what we have to do sometimes, just in terms of getting a general overview. So what I want to say is, is this, I understand that not everyone will think about sex or their attitude towards sex will not be the way that I'm presenting it today. All I can do is just present what I understand of what I see in culture and society today. I think we get a good idea of what our society's attitudes are through uh, looking at our culture, through media, through art, through the things that we're presented with in the day-to-day. -day. And I think the prevailing attitude towards sex in our society today can be summed up with this question, in what's in it for yourself? I think that's generally what we would see as the prevailing attitude. Where your needs, where your fulfilment comes first, where there's no requirement for commitment. We're told, often, in many ways, that you can have sex with who you want, with how many people you want, however you want to do it, Although, within the, within, as long as it's consenting and legal. So that, that's kind of the boundaries in which people would set it. But kind of within those boundaries, you can do what you want. It's about what is in it for yourself. Are your needs being met? Are you getting what you feel that you want? And this appears to me to be the message that's sent out from many, many points of society. Again, I, it may not be what, what your perspective would be, but from that's generally how I would see the way that our society the attitude our society would have. And there's new... I think technology as well has really changed the way that people uh, would think about sex and I guess the access that people would have to it. When we think about the increase in access to pornography, we've got dating apps, there's even websites where people can sign up to arrange affairs. You can access sex whenever you want it, however you want it. That's the reality of the society in which we live today. But Christians should refuse to take our standards from contemporary society. We need to realign our ways of thinking and our attitudes with what Jesus would teach and with what the Bible would teach. And biblical teaching is this, is that the context for sexual intimacy as part of God's initial design is within marriage. That was God's intention at the start of, of the, the proper context for sexual intimacy. So for us, as I'm, I'm saying that, is because actually if we look at the kind of the boundaries and the framework that society would have, actually we need to look at what's the context that God would say for us, and then we work everything out from that context. So we're looking, uh, so while society's attitudes have changed, God's have not. A faithful marriage relationship is the context that Paul is calling believers to when he calls them away from sexual immorality. There was a, an article that I was made aware of through someone I follow on Twitter, and they posted an article uh, written by a young lady, and the, the, the title of this article was In My Twenties, Dating and Celibate. This lady was writing about, actually, the, for, for much of her, her adult life, uh, that hadn't been the way that she'd lived, but she'd got to a point where she wanted to readdress the way that she was living. So she had now got to this point where she decided that she was still going to date, but she wasn't going to sleep with people that she was dating. The reason someone had put this on Twitter, the comments they made was, actually, we're in the kind of society now where this is news. Someone can write an article about the fact that they're, they're in their 20s and they're going to be dating, but they're not going to sleep with someone. And actually, what this person on Twitter was saying was there's been a shift within their lifetime, and this will be a shift within the lifetime of many of us here, 
where what was expected or what was normal is now being seen as a crazy, wild life choice. Now in verse 4 of what Paul's saying, we, there's a bit of debate as to, to quite what is meant here. It can be interpreted in different ways. It can either be interpreted as having control over our body, or it can be interpreted that each one would know how to take a marriage partner for themselves. So they're quite different, but it depends on how it's, it, it, it's translated. So it's either about having control over our body, or knowing how to take a marriage partner for yourselves. Phil Moore in his commentary, he says, actually, either way, Paul's instructions are equally relevant to married people, but also to single people, uh, and especially to single people who would be looking for a marriage partner. Now, I think the Christian attitude can be seen as prudish, negative, old-fashioned. I've definitely heard people talking about, about that. Yet through Paul's writing to the church, we can see God's view of sex is not a low one. It's actually a very, very high view that he holds. Paul tells us that sexual intimacy is to be holy and honourable. Sometimes it can be talked about like it's quite dirty. But actually, Paul's saying that, you know what, actually God views it as an opportunity where where it can be holy and honourable, where partners are honoured, where there's an unselfish desire to love, to cherish and to respect. And this is what Paul is calling believers to. Sex has been distorted by sin. I mentioned earlier that there are certain areas of life, all areas of life have been kind of distorted by sin. But we've, and we've already seen how the prevailing attitude in our society really conflicts with God's view. Uh, and to the most extreme, and, and unfortunately we don't need to look very far to see the widespread reality of exploitation and abuse as well. That, it would be wrong for us to ignore that because that's the reality of the world in which we live. But Paul tells us that sexual intimacy is to be holy and honourable. And as believers, we have an opportunity to live a different way. We have an opportunity to speak and to demonstrate another message, a message that sex is about holiness and about honour. That kind of really is in conflict, isn't it, to the prevailing ways of thinking. But this is the way that God thinks about it. Now, Paul, this call to um, this call to the kind of um, attitude that Paul is calling the church to is rooted in relationships. So, firstly, our relationship with God. He compares the church to the Gentiles, to those outside of the church. He says, "Look, the Gentiles have their own attitude to, to sex, and the reason why they're living that way is because they don't know God." That's what he says. They don't know God, and they live in this way. We are so informed, shaped, and challenged by our culture. We are fed daily. We are told what is okay and what's not. We're told what's desirable and what's not. So outside of God, why wouldn't people live in a way that's seen as being acceptable by society? Does that make sense? If people are being told by society, this is acceptable, this is an okay way to live, outside of God, why would anyone question that? I remember, I've had many conversations with my parents about all sorts of, uh, of things, particularly about what life was like bef- uh, before me and my brother were born or what life was like before they were Christians. And I had these conversations when I was quite a bit younger and I really saw the world as a lot, it was a lot more black and white at those times. And I remember some of the things that they were telling me I got really wound up about and really upset about. But then they would tell me, they were like, but we didn't know Jesus. 
This is what our life was like, but we didn't know Jesus. Because knowing Jesus, knowing God, changes everything. See outside of God. Let me just go back a little bit. So, outside of God, why wouldn't people live in a way that is seen as being acceptable by society? Where to go against the grain is seen as some kind of a wild life choice. And in regards to sex, we don't need to look very far to realise we live in a highly sexualised culture. It is, you don't even need to go looking for it anymore. It's just, it's there. We're kind of bombarded by it. But knowing God changes everything. And if we know God, then our lives are going to change. Our lives are going to look different to the way that many people live in our communities. We know God and we are called to live lives that are pleasing to him. We're to see, value and cherish sex in the way that he does. Now Paul again reinforces God's will and call for us that our lives are not for impurity, but in holiness. It's not rules and regulations that have called you to live this way. It's God. And God wants to go on giving us the Holy Spirit every day. He fills us with the Holy Spirit to make us holy. One commentary I read, he said, the clue's in the name. It's called the Holy Spirit because when he comes to live in us, he makes us holy. And in a sense, what Paul does, he, he takes himself out of the equation when he tells the church that if they disregard what he's written, and if they disregard his instructions, it's not him they're disregarding. But it's God. He says, you're not disregarding man. This isn't about me. So actually, what I'm saying to you today, this isn't about whether you take on board what Sam said or not, or whether you disregard what Sam has said or not, because it's not about that. It's about God. So the, the call that Paul has put on our lives is rooted in relationship with God, but it's also rooted in relationship with others. The gospel is not one-dimensional. It's about a new life in relationship with God, absolutely. But it cannot help but impact, affect and shape the way we see, treat and love others. It will have implications uh, in all of our relationships and in all of the contexts and settings in which we find ourselves. The gospel impacts every area of our lives. Paul says we're not to transgress or wrong others in matters of sexual intimacy. So it's not just about us. It's not just about God. Actually, we're not to wrong other people. And the word wrong that Paul used effectively means to defraud. I think that's a really strong word to use, but actually it's very helpful. Because if you're defrauding someone, you're, you're taking something that's not yours. And what so much of sexual sin does is it robs people out of the sexual purity that they ought to be given. So it's, it's in contrast to the way that Paul is calling us to be in, in, in holiness and in honouring. And here's the thing. Marriage is not a fail-safe. We can't think once I'm married, everything is going to be okay. If we do that, that's actually a fairly dangerous trap that, that we may well fall into. Because within marriage, there still needs to be restraint. In marriage, we're not using your partner to meet your needs, but you're honouring your partner first and foremost, where there's a desire to love and to respect and to cherish them. 
Fillmore, who I mentioned earlier. Just, I'm going to kind of tie everything together. There's a lot in there, I know, and I understand. Um, but Fillmore says this. He says that we need to be radical about sexual sin because it is sin against one another, against the Lord, against ourselves, and against the Spirit who makes us holy. So we need to take time to actually think on what Paul is saying, to reflect on what he's saying, to think about how it's going to impact us and affect us. The last thing I wanted today was for what I was saying to come across as being really condemning or heavy. I know that both within and outside the church, attitudes towards sex, sexual intimacy, uh, in terms of temptation, uh, ways of life that we're in, I know it's a really challenging thing. But actually, we need to be those people, if we're called to live lives that are pleasing to God, we need to look at all areas of our life to think about what is the way that God would have us live in this particular area. What sort of attitude does God want us to have? And then we need to be those people that are seeking to, to walk in ways that are pleasing to God. And actually, if you're someone who's thinking, and not just in terms of, in terms of the area of sex, but thinking about actually... There are other areas of life where I know I'm walking in a way that isn't pleasing to God. Could be in relationships, it could be in work, it could be in finance, it could be in family, it could be any sort of area. Do you know what? There's really good news for each and every one of us. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is great news. When God highlights things in our life, it's not to beat us down and make us feel awful. He highlights things in our lives so that we can get it right with him. That we can bring it to him and we confess what we're doing. And we can say, actually, God, I want to live the way that you want me to live. None of us get it right all the time. We won't. Remember, it's an ongoing process. But we know, actually, if God highlights things in our lives, we can come to him and know that he is faithful to forgive us. And he will do us good. Now next week we're going to pick up on relationships and work. Uh, we've been called to radical discipleship where we live radically changed lives because of the radical grace that has been shown to us through Jesus. At times this is going to be costly as we lay down our own ways of living or our old attitudes. And often it's going to be challenging as we listen to God's voice above society's voice and it takes boldness, requires boldness to stand, to make choices and to live lives that are pleasing to God. But I just want to remind you once more of Paul's words in Philippians 3, where Paul was able to say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So as we continue to walk with God, as we grow in knowing him more, we will learn to keep asking the question in all areas of life, would it please God? That's what we need to keep forefront of our mind. Can I pray for us? And then I think actually we'll, we'll draw our time to a close.